If you are looking to elevate your leadership and drive your nonprofit forward, I invite you to subscribe to the Successful Nonprofits newsletter. Every week, I curate exclusive shareworthy content that sparks inspiration, innovation, and conversation. From the latest trends to timeless advice, the weekly email newsletter is your all-access pass to a treasure trove of resources. But receiving the newsletter is not just about staying informed. It's also about getting our best content first. Subscribers get first access to our newest downloadable templates designed to propel your leadership and amplify your impact. And that's not all, my friend. We are constantly working on new ways to support you and your mission. So as a subscriber, you'll get updates on our latest projects, opportunities to participate in surveys, and a say in the topics that we tackle next. You will essentially get me as a consultant, coach, and confidant in your inbox, ready to help you navigate the challenges of nonprofit leadership. So if you're an executive director, board chair, or a nonprofit leader who believes in making a difference, join me as a newsletter subscriber. Visit SuccessfulNonprofits.com forward slash newsletter to sign up today. And now, friend, let me take you to the episode you've downloaded. Welcome to the Successful Nonprofits Podcast. I'm your host, Dolph Goldenberg. Friends, if there is one episode you listen to this month, and I don't just mean one episode of the Successful Nonprofits Podcast. I mean, if there's only one podcast episode you listen to this month, let it be this one. Because we've got Tanya Rumble and Nicole McVann today. And we are talking about all things equity in philanthropy. Tanya and Nicole met in the early 2000s when they worked together as fundraisers. In 2020, they hosted their very first collaboration about equity, anti-oppression, and philanthropy through an interactive session at an AFP Congress. I have to tell you that it was one of the most popular and best attended sessions with more than 350 people attending. Now, if you have ever presented at a conference, you know that normally they give you kind of a smallish room, maybe can seat 50 people or 75 people. So I can only imagine the conference producers suddenly having to go, oh my gosh, we need to find a bigger room. We need to make the ballroom available for Tanya and Nicole because suddenly 350 people all want to attend this session. And after that session, many organizations reached out to them wanting similar workshops and sessions. And so over the past few years, Tanya and Nicole have facilitated a workshop for more than 4,000 people all around North America and the world. And in this process, they have refined their workshops and created what they term the five fallacies of fundraising that limit authentic donor relationships. And they went a little bit further, and in 2021, they launched a community of practice as their commitment to creating a brave space for fundraisers to talk through the challenging issues in the sector. This community of practice is underpinned by a core belief that there is power in collective wisdom and that facilitating spaces for this wisdom is a way to bring about positive and lasting change. Now, my friends, this is an incredible conversation, but before I welcome the guests, I do need to let you know 
that we had a little bit of an issue with one of our guests' audio. And so that audio, frankly, is not quite as good as we might like. And normally, if that happens, and it does not happen often in recording sessions, it maybe happens once a year, we'll actually decide not to run the conversation because we don't want to give you all audio that is not top quality. But this conversation was so impactful and is so important that we had to move forward with it. And that's why we're sharing it with you. And my ask is that you please, please hang in there, even though some of the audio is not the best, because I promise you, you will get a lot out of today's conversation with Tanya and Nicole. Tanya, Nicole, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having us. Yeah, thanks to all for having us. I, I am thrilled. And again, I do think like if our, if our friends only listen to one episode this month, this is definitely the one to listen to. And as I was doing research for this episode, obviously I came across the five fallacies and I saw them listed and I read more about them. And I really, I had fine appreciation for the way you approached and thought about these fallacies. Could we spend a little bit of time and, and talk about them? Sure. Yeah. So maybe I'll start with my favorite because uh, it's my personal favorite is the first fallacy, but really maybe we'll take it back a little bit. The five fallacies were born out of this like study uh, that Nicole and I have been doing throughout our own professional and personal lives in fundraising. And so they're the culmination of years of experience and years of understanding and dismantling our own kind of biases and stereotypes and expectations about what this work is. So um, we we developed these five fallacies um, as a way of talking about some of the things that we see that's happening in philanthropy and some of the trends that we were experiencing. And a lot of people come to this work from a place of like wanting to be anti-oppressive, but also often come at it from like a very business case perspective around wanting to bring in donors that are don't look like the ones that they already have within their community of supporters. And so this five fallacies was born out of this idea that we can't start the work of like bringing folks into community if we haven't actually dismantled some of the harmful practices or quote unquote best practices that we've often grown up with as fundraisers that have been raised in the profession. So the first one that for us makes a lot of sense um, is wealth is built by the smartest and most capable people or more simply put the myth of meritocracy. I think we intentionally put this first because we can't really talk about donors and fundraising if we don't talk about the people that enliven the sector. And the myth of meritocracy is so steeped in everything that we do and the way that we talk about gifts and the way that we talk about, um, you know, talent that we're bringing into our organizations, whether paid or board members. And it's, it is a myth, you know, it's been dismantled um, a lot. You know, we can think back to Martin Luther King and talking about you know, you can't pull yourself up by your bootstraps if you don't have any. And so the myth of meritocracy, I think we felt was should be number one because it's the most pervasive and it's the most harmful in a lot of ways because it it's so pervasive that we almost don't even question it. We just assume that people that are in a position to give away a lot of money did so by hard work and by merit. And that's just simply not true. And if we don't unpack what meritocracy means, we simply are not acknowledging the systemic oppression that is so deeply rooted in 
all aspects of our lives, the organizations that we work with, the interpersonal interactions that we experience, the individual experiences that we have in the world, but most importantly, systemically in policies and legislation and kind of culture that we are all a part of. So that is the first um, of our five fallacies that we think is pretty important to talk uh, openly about. And obviously, I understand that each one of these fallacies really impacts and influences the way fundraisers engage with donors. But I do think that myth of meritocracy absolutely does. It's Sometimes it's almost like we're going to prospective major donors or major donors and, and you're frankly acting like their opinion is the most important one in the room, even if they have no specialized experience or knowledge in that area. Yeah, and I think we also, like, you can see in the way that we talk about philanthropic gifts in the public domain. And we talk about the donors who've made those gifts. And we sort of like, we talk about them in this way that there's this inherent wisdom and knowledge that is born out of being able to accumulate wealth rather than the structural advantages that someone experienced that enabled them to create that wealth. So I think it, it relates not only into the way that we interact with our donors, but the way that we interact with each other. Um, and another example I might give around this is the way that we recruit board directors. So we list off all of these competencies, qualifications, and all these things we'd like someone to come with. And at the very end of a posting, there may be some language to the effect of, and those with like, you know, marginalized intersectional identities or diverse candidates should apply or are encouraged to apply. And when we frame it in that particular way, what we're saying is that these qualifications that generally are born out of a lot of structural advantage or privilege um, are more important than the lived experience that we so-called want. And so that tells someone that you're lived experiences, your identities that can't be taught for, can't you can't go to school for those things are not nearly as important as, you know, whether or not you're a CPA or you're a lawyer or you have a lot of experience with managing mergers and acquisitions or fundraising. So maybe I'll pause there and let Nicole talk about their favorite fallacy. Yeah, I'm happy to jump in on number two, uh, if that's okay. And, and that's my personal favorite. So it's the donor is always right. Um, and this one for me, uh, I've been fundraising for more than 20 years and I've gone through my fair share of fundraising trainings, which are usually sales trainings under a different banner. And it comes from this idea that, you know, the customer is always right. The donor is always right. And there's such a huge challenge this, with this one um, because essentially it wipes out any type of boundaries um, that a fundraiser or an organization may have. Um, and it puts the donor first at all costs. So again, kind of uh, ramping up where we consider the donor to have um, and lessening the organizational mission, um, the care and cultivation of our own fundraising staff, and also just importantly, the, the beneficiaries of the organization. And so this can lead, I think what we have seen is that it leads to mission drift in organizations. So if you have a donor with company, a foundation, an individual, um, they can essentially uh, start dictating and drifting your mission into areas of their own interest. Um, it also can lead to burnout. And I think in 2023, we've seen a lot of folks leaving this profession. Um, and if you think about your own personal relationships or work-based relationships, if you don't have any type of boundary, if you don't have a balance in the power dynamics, uh, you're going to have a very damaging relationship. And so we find this with donors as well is 
how do you rebalance that power equation? How do you protect uh, fundraising, volunteers that are fundraising? And how do you not assume that the donor is always right in everything they suggest or want to do? And, and kind of rejig those expectations uh, consistently through, uh, through the relationship. Uh, so this is a really, really tough one. I think it's one that has been ingrained in all of our trainings and, and the culture of nonprofits um, that really takes a daily commitment um, to walking back. And I will say, I kind of feel like this fallacy, along with, and I know we're going to probably go through each one, along with fallacy number four, I think actually causes fundraisers to spend way more time on a specific donor than they otherwise would. And if they could just, you know, if we, I should not say they, if we could just stop, um, frankly, embodying our practice with those two fallacies, we could probably spend more time with more donors. And potentially, I mean, I know we're not trying to make a business case for this, but potentially even raise more money. Absolutely. And if you think about the donors always right, so two big things that come up quite often here as fundraisers, both my own career and teams that I've worked with is, um, trying to pretzel yourself to create volunteer opportunities when volunteer opportunities don't exist and thinking how much effort you're spending both for yourselves, but also a lot of times for the mission-based side of the organization. Um, and then the other one would be creating pet projects uh, or programs that the donor specifically cares about that are not aligned with your core work. And I don't know any nonprofits that are rolling in the dough and are resource, uh, resource uh, ready to go. And so thinking about it from a resource point of view, it's really helpful to say, is this a good use of our organization's time um, and effort, or is it not? Because there's thousands of other charities out there or that we might find a better fit with that donor. So if I can share a quick story with you where I actually saw this in action and, oh my gosh, it was such a pain. And we all wished, we all wished that the donor would have called us up first and been like, hey, what do you need in this situation? So we, I was a baby fundraiser. We had a partner, a partner agency that was a, that was a, a subsidized um, apartment building for older adults. And there was a, there was an article in the local paper because their, their AC had broken the day before and it's, it's the Atlanta area and it gets really hot in the Atlanta area. Um, and, and so there was an article about it. And so the donor, and this is the kind of thing that he would often do. We would often, for example, give $25,000 and say, this is all for this. Not a dime can be spent on admin. So the donor called up essentially Home Depot and was like, I want, I want 200 fans delivered to this apartment building at five, before five o'clock today. Here is my credit card. And now this apartment building suddenly had, you know, hundreds of fans that had had to figure out how to get to, to not, not just to the residents, but then also once the AC was fixed later that day, most of them did not want them. So then they had a disposal problem. And, you know, a, exactly. And it was one of those situations where had the, had the philanthropist just called up and be like, what do you all need? It could have been, oh, you know, we, we're having trouble getting an HVAC company out there. You know, you own a hundred properties in the area. Could you, could you get someone out here? It could have been as simple as that. Yeah. And so often I always think that like, there's so many great, that's a, that's a wonderful example. There's so many ranging from the really banal and small to the really large. But I often think about this, we think about this a lot as a structural issue. So we condition philanthropists and donors to think that they always have the right answer, that they're always um, in the right. And we condition our fundraising teams, our EDs and our volunteers to think, well, let's look to the donor for the solution. We're doing it all and we often talk about a rebalance of power dynamics. So oftentimes donors come to an organization because they care about the work you're doing. 
And they may spend a very small percentage of their time thinking about it. As an example, I work for United Way. So we do a lot of work in poverty. That's really our core mission. Um, and I think about poverty and the factors that keep people in and create poverty for people all of the time. So, so much of the time. And so do the rest of my team, so does the organization. Donors may think about poverty once in a while. And so trying to rebalance that and trying to think about the fact that donor comes to an organization and we have the opportunity to share knowledge, to share solutions, to share solutions that are based in community and with community is such a powerful notion. And by doing that, by practicing that on a daily basis with our donors, we're reshifting the expectations for what their role is, what our role is, what our community's role are. And I think we also have done ourselves a disservice over the years and thinking about subjugating our supporters and donors away from the beneficiaries or the communities that we're engaged um, and in you know relationship with. And for a lot of reasons. So on the one hand, when we do bring those folks together, it's usually in a situation that's very performative or requires community members or beneficiaries to sort of like kiss the ring and be in photo ops that really just like highlight, you know, systemic inequities in photo format. And then the rest of the time, we're, we're leery about bringing our beneficiaries and community partners into meetings with donors because we're worried they're going to say the wrong thing. We're worried they're going to go off script. And we're worried that they're going to take the conversation away from like the kind of big gift that we're about to solicit. And when we do that, we just basically disempower our community partners. And we, we also disempower ourselves. And we also don't give donors an opportunity to really deepen their knowledge and understanding of the cause or the work that we're trying to accomplish. And I think that that's something that's come out of like fundraising is largely dominated by white women and, and moderate white folks in general. And one of the values that those kind of communities hold dear is professionalism, diplomacy, and politeness. And when we value politeness and diplomacy and professionalism over all else, then we are not willing to have a, to engage in the work of systemic change because that work is inherently difficult, it's inherently complex, and it's inherently work that you, you can create harm. You can't be polite when you say the words anti-Black racism. There's no other polite euphemism for that. And so when we're unwilling to name those things or to be in conversation with our supporters, authentically talking about the root causes of the work and the mission that we're trying to accomplish, then we really are never going to be able to deepen those relationships. And I think that oftentimes, like, Donors can surprise us just like anyone else in our life can surprise us. If we don't give folks an opportunity to understand and to be in community with us, then we're always going to kind of keep them at arm's length. And I don't think you'll ever realize the full potential of that relationship, whether monetarily or whether systems change wise, whether community building wise, et cetera. And so I think, I think part of what you were just talking about was that fallacy remaining neutral to secure funding. And when we're being polite and kind, we're not moving things forward. We might get the gift, but we don't get progress. And that's really what we should be seeking as fundraisers. So I think there's one other fallacy that we probably need to touch on. And we have in some ways, and is it donors belong on a pedestal? 
I think it's our collectively our second favorite fallacy. And I think when you just think about it visually, it doesn't require a lot more explanation than that. When you think of someone on a pedestal, they're literally out of reach and they're not in community with everyone else and they're on a different level. And so I think that that comes out of that kind of professionalism, that politeness. And for a lot of us, you know, myself included, I just grew up in fundraising. I didn't go to a fundraising program before I became a professional fundraiser. So a lot of the trainings that I received early in my career that Nicole also would have received were born out of sales trainings. And, you know, it's really the customer's always right. The donor's always right. And they're on that pedestal. They are the only reason why your job exists. And so everything that you do should be in service to the donor. And it's taken me many years to like realize that A, they're fallible just like anyone else. They are not subject matter experts. And also, you know, you miss out on that opportunity to build the best quality relationships and you spend time with folks that don't share your values and you put those donors on a pedestal. Because the reality is there are literally hundreds of thousands of charities in the US and more than 90,000 in Canada. And many of them, if you were to look up their mission statements online, are exactly alike. There are many, many organizations that share a very similar raison d'etre. But I think what often sets them apart is their values and the way that they go about the work. And so if you're not willing to talk about your values with your donors and you're simply wanting to talk purely about mission, then you're going to keep them on that pedestal because you're going to be afraid of bringing them into the into the work in a deeper, more meaningful way. And it's going to potentially alienate some folks. But more importantly, it brings people in closer that when you signal what your values are, I think people are really attracted to that. And those that see themselves on the fringes come closer because they believe that they see their own values reflected in the way that the organization delivers on its mission. It sounds like we're starting to have that next part of the conversation, which is an incredibly important part, which is how do we challenge and dismantle these fallacies in the work that we do? I think this is our favorite part um, because having been in this sector for so long and and knowing we're going to be in it for a long time as well, nothing's getting more affordable. um, There's a real opportunity to think about how we each show up every day in whatever role we're in in our organizations and challenge it. Um, And uh, you started off the intro by talking about how we believe in the power of collective wisdom. Um, And I think this comes down to the fact that what I have seen in so many fundraising cultures is this grouping of fundraisers, you know, that olden days could be back to the office now and maybe more virtual and talking about, oh, I just had this experience or I'm going into this experience and I feel nervous or I'm worried about this. And this idea of of sharing and working through solutions together because fundraising is a relationship and relationships don't have cut and dry answers. And so Tang and I really believe in that power of working with other folks to bring in diverse experiences and thoughts about how you handle these things, how you show up differently from day to day. Um, And that's why we started the community of practice is to create a space so you can come in and we can workshop issues. What happens when you go to a meeting and a donor, donor says something racist, homophobic, transphobic, sexist? What do you do? Well, it depends. What's your role? What's your, how much power do you have in that meeting? Who else is in that meeting? What's your own um, identity in that meeting? And so there's no simple answer. It's an answer that has to be worked through together. And it's also an answer that has to be practiced. 
And, and we really believe in this being fundraisers ourselves is you can, you know, you can listen to podcasts, you can read articles, you can watch TikToks on these things. But until you practice doing the anti-oppressive work and building that muscle, um, you won't be able to do it. Um, and I have a lot more to say on that, but I'll just take a pause there. because I'm sure Tanya has some, some other ways in which, uh, ways in which we can practically do this work. Yeah. I think you have to first kind of situate yourself kind of like where, what, where your basis of power and how much support you have in this work. But as Nicole said, I think we see ourselves as facilitators in this space, but we're cautious about calling ourselves quasi experts because, you know, we see ourselves as on a continuous learning journey and we're never going to know absolutely everything. And so in that way, I think bringing a learning mindset is the number one thing that you could probably do for yourself if you want to engage in this work. Because if you're thinking that mastery is something that you can get to in this work, I think that you've set yourself up for failure, disappointment, and easily wanting to opt out of the messy and difficult work of dismantling oppression. But if you see yourself on that journey of learning and where you recognize that unlearning and actually dismantling the things that you thought you knew about the profession that you've been in for potentially decades as being equally as important to any learning you could possibly do, then you've got the kind of right, right mindset because this is inherently risky work. This is inherently difficult work. This is inherently complicated work. So I think that's pretty important. And that's why we set up our community pra of practice in that particular vein so that we understand that solutions come from within. And I think that the other thing that you can do is just to start to test your comfort in both talking about this work with the right vernacular, not trying to dance around it, but naming the work for what it is and talking and understanding about your role in fundraising as, you know, this is the work. So if charities benefit from tax regimes such that they don't have to pay taxes, it's because they're supposed to provide public benefit. And what does public benefit mean? If we're not engaged in the work of dismantling systemic oppression, whether you're a child welfare charity, a social services organization, an environmental charity, sport and recreation charity, then you're missing the point of why charity exists from my perspective. Um, so those are some of the things I think about. We just need to do it and practice it every day. We can do as many trainings as we want, but if we're not willing to actually say something, especially when we have some positional power, so whether or not someone says something to you, but if you hear about, you hear colleagues talking about a situation with a donor or you lead a team and you've heard about a scenario that just doesn't sit right, actually talking about it and not just issuing it as like that is part of the business of fundraising. You deal with difficult people, you deal with difficult donors. No, but actually willing to have those conversations, I think is the best starting point because people are looking to make sure that they have the right vocabulary and they say the right things at the right time and they want a strategy, but we just need to start talking about what's happening that's wrong and, and figuring out how we can actually set some new boundaries and expectations for ourselves and for our organizations um, when it comes to the relationships we're building with community, volunteers, staff, donors, and, and everyone else that we consider to be part of our ecosystem. You've both mentioned practice several times. And so one of my questions, I and mean, one of the things I immediately think about is, okay, maybe practice might be role-playing a situation or scenario in a safe space. Uh, and I see you both kind of nodding. I, I know our friends listening don't get to see the video, but I see you both kind of nodding. Are, are, there other, are there other ways we practice this in a safe space before we 
do something that maybe we're like, oh my gosh, I'm out there in the, in the middle of the room and everybody's looking at me. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, maybe I'll just unpack this idea of a safe space. We don't believe that there is such a thing. You know, my identities, like my intersectional identities, Nicole's intersectional identities, yours, Dolph, we can all be marginalized and oppressed by the things that people say to us in this context. And so I think when we promise each other safety, then we inherently want this to be a soothing environment. And so I would say the work of like dismantling anti-oppression is not a soothing environment. It can be, it can be really affirming and inspiring, but it's work that, you know, it takes a lot of effort and it can be taxing. So instead, we like to use the terminology of brave space. And even that has been dismantled that like, but really the idea of a brave space is that we want you to be like, have the courage to say the things that have gone on in the shadows and that are forever unnamed in the work that we do and that are just expected aspects of the work, but really to call them out. Um, But yeah, in our community of practice, we always practice scenarios and have folks work in small groups through simulated or anonymized scenarios that either Nicole or I or others have experienced. And we feel like that's the most practical way for people to like get more comfortable exercising that muscle. Sorry, well, I cut you off also. No, that's wonderful. Thank you. I would say the other ways to practice, you don't always have to practice before. So one of the most powerful things I've seen in my work and at the organizations I've been in is uh, when something happens, uh, is to talk about it after, to dissect it and talk about what we would do differently. Um, and so, it, it, you know, ideally you're working through scenarios before you go into them. Um, but it can be really powerful to come back to the, you know, in air quotes office and say, okay, I have this uh, donor who has unrealistic expectations, or I'm having trouble with this or that, and then to work through it. And I, I recognize that not all teams are a good environment for that, but small team meetings or your one-to-one meeting, finding those like-minded people in your organization to work through things on a regular basis can be helpful. And the other place to practice this is, is by finding an accountability buddy. So find somebody in the sector, maybe they're not in your organization, maybe that would actually be better, but find somebody that you can work with and talk about these things with, bounce each other, bounce ideas off each other, and also be the support. And that accountability buddy should also hold you accountable to push yourselves in. Uh, and speaking as a white person, I'll, I'll speak with the fact that so many white folks don't speak up if an oppressive thing has been said uh, that doesn't affect them. Um, and so if you have an accountability buddy, if you are both white practicing to show up differently, or if you're both able-bodied practicing that, um, and being able to hold each other to account is really powerful. And to Tanya's point, this is never ending, right? This continues to go on and on and on. And as you do it, and I've seen this with a lot of folks that have come to our community practice and webinars, we get these notes after, of, you know, I did it, I finally said something, or I finally challenged this, and what you see is you build a muscle, just like anything else in life. You build a lot of strength around this and you carry a lot of momentum forward if you just start taking action. Thank you. And and it feels to me like we've also started to talk some about your philanthropy and equity community of practice. Can I know we've only got a few minutes left, but could you share a little bit about that? Absolutely. We'd love to. We've talked a little bit about it here and there. And, and like you said, we started this back in uh, 2021. 
because we found when we had been giving some webinars, because at that point, everything was virtual, um, when we were talking about these fallacies, people love the practice and they wanted to share things that had happened to them. They wanted to talk through things they were worried about. And so the community of practice is a space, we run it monthly, we run it online, so anybody has access to it. We're both you know, uh, based up in, in Toronto, but we have people from all over uh, North America and the globe. And essentially we'll take a different topic each month. Tanya and I will spend a bit of time talking about it, trying to level set on that topic. For example, the one in November, 2023 is about calling in versus calling out and how those are different. And so we'll talk a little bit about that from a fundraising and philanthropy point of view. And then we'll take a scenario um, we'll share it with the group and we put people in small breakout groups so they can work together on it. And then we come back and have a discussion. And it's one of the opportunities to practice what you would like to do. So how would you do this? What would it look like? What challenges will you face? And it's really a hands-on interactive way for people to find an affirming space to also make connections uh, across uh, geography and industry, you know, industry and different organizations. Um, and to really do that regular commitment of I'm in this work for the long term. You know, and that's a really core thing for us is where do we want philanthropy to be in 10, 20, 30 years time? What legacy do we want to leave as the leaders that we are today that looks different than the folks that we learned from? Thank you. And, and I believe that Friends who want to know more about your community of practice can go to recastphilanthropy.ca. Yep, that's correct. Awesome. Yeah. So, so friends, again, recastphilanthropy.ca. We are also going to put it in our show notes. Tanya, Nicole, thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast. Oh, you're very welcome. We love talking about this and we appreciate your podcast taking a bit of time to explore this very uh, meaty topic. Thank you so much, Dolph. This is obviously uh, our work, but it's also our lives. So it's a really welcome opportunity to share something that's very deeply meaningful to both of us. And I think that's the legacy that we hope we leave is that we've just like left the sector a better place and hopefully inspired people along the way to think about the harm that, that they can create, but also the opportunity to dismantle the oppression that exists in every sector, including this one, which we both love dearly. Thank you. And and friends, thank you so much for joining us for this conversation with Tanya and Nicole. Um, as we discussed in that conversation, they run a monthly philanthropy and equity community of practice. It is a brave space for fundraisers and nonprofit folks to work through situations and issues around philanthropy, equity, inclusion, and accessibility that they encounter with donors and volunteers, and frankly, within their own organizations. The community is open to anyone in the world. So you may have noticed the URL ends in CA, which means Canada, but it is open to anyone in the world, regardless of your title or your employment status. I would imagine probably regardless of whether you're thinking about becoming a fundraiser, you've been a fundraiser for four or five decades. It is open to you. The topics that they discuss will be most relevant to those who are involved in fundraising, philanthropy, and nonprofit leadership and governance. And once again, if you want to know more, please visit recastphilanthropy.ca. And friends, I always ask, if you found this episode useful, please rate and review the podcast. Additionally, I always want to leave you 
with two additional episodes that you might want to download if you found this one helpful and useful for your own practice. The first one is episode 214, Gender Matters in Philanthropy with Jeannie Sager. And the second is episode 252, Inclusive and Effective Decision-Making with Mike Chicarone. That, my friends, is our episode for the week. I hope that you have gained some insight to help you and your nonprofit thrive. And the lawyers always make me do a disclaimer, but I've started to get snarky about it, so I don't just do the basic disclaimer anymore. Just a quick reminder as we wind down. I might be able to advise on nonprofit matters great and small, but I do not offer tax, legal, or accounting advice, and neither does this consulting practice, nor the podcast. For tax, legal, or accounting stuff, find a professional who's licensed and has mastered that craft.